Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome, everybody, and welcome back to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast where we focus in on teamwork, leadership, and culture. Now, there's been a lot of folks dropping me messages saying things like, this is great stuff, not just for work. And you're absolutely right. A lot of what we're talking about is development for family teams. Uh, it could be just local civic groups, homeowners associations. It doesn't matter. So these are powerful tools to use in so many aspects of our lives. It works great with kids, too. So understanding the power of teamwork, leadership, and culture, or what I like to call the new TLC. We're excited to have joining us today from just north of the U.S. border in Canada, Dr. Paul Snowden. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about Paul's background because a lot of times people say to me that teamwork and the stuff I do is a bunch of foo-foo. Well, Dr. Snowden is going to bring to us some of the science behind what we talk about today and what I've been talking about for years. And we're not going to get into real brain science. That's our another day. But I just want to talk about the power of this. Dr. Snowden is the founder, as well as the CEO of Working Theory, a consulting firm that connects best science with best practices in the fields of leadership, team performance, and workplace coaching. By the way, if you think this comes naturally, it might. Dr. Paul has an engineering background by training, and he executive coaches rooted in evidence-based approaches. So again, evidence-based approaches and science behind this. He's also identified structures and processes needed to improve managerial coaching outcomes and how to unlock these barriers with leaders, and that's going to be key. He's also an assistant professor in management and organizational studies with Huron University. He's designed and delivered custom executive education programs at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, and has taught for over a decade at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies. He's also done a lot of work in the United States over the years as well. When he's not really out there working and doing all of his science stuff, you might find him volunteering in a number of children's activities, exploring new recipes in the kitchen. And one of my favorites, of course, is listening to jazz or strumming his ukulele. Maybe we'll find out a little bit about an ukulele. Dr. Paul Snowden, welcome to the Teamwork Advantage. Thank you, Greg. Thanks. It's great to be here. Wonderful to be here. And thanks for having me on the show. Not a problem. We're excited about this. Uh, again, there's so many different directions that teamwork, leadership, and culture can come from. And so let's just get a little bit of your background here so people know where you're coming from as far as how, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, well, I mean, I started as an engineer, as you, as you um, laid out for everyone there. And, and of course, that was always a, a story of, of solving problems in business. But the problem was, I thought I was smart enough to solve them on my own. And, uh, and certainly some of the problems I could solve on my own. But the vast majority of problems you can't solve on your own. And I had to learn that the hard way. Um, 
but I did learn it and I got quite good at it actually. And as it turned out, I became really good at solving problems, both in the manufacturing world. And at the time I was with General Electric in the United States, um, I was working in a plastics plant, believe it or not, outside of Chicago. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ottawa, Illinois. So that was the funny part, right? Here's a Canadian working in Ottawa and it's not the nation's capital. It's Ottawa, Illinois. And um, I didn't put two and two together on that at first. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was, it was a great experience. I loved working with GE. This is back in the Jack Welch days, just to date myself here. And, um, and I became a real expert at solving problems in one of the methodologies that was used there, Six Sigma and later mm -hmm. Lean. So, um, but more on that journey around using Lean and Six Sigma and the scientific method to solve problems. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. But um, but the great thing with GE was that if you if you were good at solving problems, you could solve them anywhere, and mm -hmm. and they had lots of problems that needed solving and lots of teams that needed to work together to solve these problems. And I ended up working in San Francisco, you know, at the turn of the century with GE at the time, and had a, a wonderful experience actually learning and working with teams not in a manufacturing setting anymore, but now in financial services. Interesting. And, and so still I had GE. That, still with GE. This was with in their capital businesses. Mm -hmm. GE in their capital. capital, right? Yeah. And um, and then eventually I ended up uh, leaving General Electric and traveling the world with my wife and had a great time there and came back to Canada and uh, and continued this journey of, of trying to understand how and why teams and ultimately organizations become more effective. And I became a consultant at, at PricewaterhouseCoopers and I consulted around these topics and, and eventually started doing my studies on this. And, and you know, it was kind of funny because the real, the real catalyst for the research and kind of where the last seven years of my life have gone came when I was working in the IT industry. Still working with teams, working on transforming businesses, transforming parts of the organization. But I would start to look at how in a sales team and in a marketing team, there, there'd be an underperforming sales territory. And what the leadership would do is actually change out the leader. And they would go from a, an underperforming team to a high performing team in usually less than a year, sometimes as fast as six months. And the business would be high-fiving itself and there'd be celebrations and accolades for all the people. Um, but myself now as an engineer leading the teams that were running and catalyzing the transformation of the business, I looked at this and saw systemic failure. How is it that a sales leader with the same team, the same products or services that they're selling, the same competition in the marketplace, how can they go from an underperforming team to a high performing team and hitting their numbers and all that changed was the leader. And I became very curious as to why is that happening? What could possibly be underpinning that transformation? And that's what I started to study in my doctorate. Okay. And I started to actually investigate how and why teams are able to perform at a higher level. And I actually studied two organizations, two sales organizations. Again, somewhat ironic that an engineer is studying sales organizations. You can come at it from a different perspective though, and that makes, that makes it powerful. Yeah, it is. You have a different lens. And, and also the, the, the thing that was kind of nice about 
um, particularly looking at sales organizations, was that in many ways they're 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 not handcuffed by you know rules and regulations and and things in the organization that would hold back their ability or their desire to experiment, because if a sales team can find a way to close a deal, or a salesperson can find a way to close a deal, or can be introduced to new ways of doing things such that they can make more money, they are absolutely aligned and incentive to go to go that path. So I purposely chose to work in that space because the the ability and the desire to try and innovate and an experiment with new ways of working was there. And after a year of studying these sales teams, what I uncovered and ultimately what was in my thesis were what I call the first principles of goal pursuit and how first principles leader, of goal, goal pursuit. Okay. And, and how leaders and managers can leverage these principles to start and create the conditions for high performance and as they manage and cultivate these conditions, it elevates the culture and the capability of the team such that this is how they operate as their norm rather than their exception. And, uh, and this journey has been fascinating to go on because of course, what separates the teams that are high performing and what separates the teams that are low performing are a set of factors that are, once you understand them and once you apply them, you can unlock any team. Right. Now, and and when you say yeah. any team, you're, you don't just mean any sales team. You mean any team, project management, engineering team, call center team, does not matter. Is that right? That's exactly right. Because what I, what I, what I developed in the, what, what sort of arose from the, from the data that I collected and the observations are, are meta principles, higher order principles that are, that aren't, um, that aren't isolated to one group. They actually apply to any group. Okay. And they apply to home and sports teams and everything. Exactly. And you brought up the key factor just a moment ago. You were talking about, you know, the team, and then you talked about the culture, and then you talked about the leader. Yeah. That's exactly what our podcast focuses on. Teamwork, leadership, and culture. Yeah. Those are the three areas that need to be in a line in order for a team to be successful. Not any one being great is going to make the team great. Is that about right? It's about right. Uh, but, the, but to build on it a little bit more and to add to it, the, the thing that will create um, the high-performing team is the behaviors and actions of the leader first. Yes. The, they, they drive mm -hmm. over 70% of team performance. Yes. But notwithstanding that, the the leader of themselves, a poor performing leader will create a poor performing team. You can't, you can't have a poor performing team without with a poor performing leader. And similarly, a leader that is strong and capable can lift the capability of their people. They can and inspire and get the people to want to do it. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and this is, this, but, but the irony or the sad part about far too many organizations is that most leaders are not operating at the level that they need to be operating at to create the conditions where their team can thrive and, and their full potential can be realized. Yeah. There's a lot of poor leadership out there. There's no doubt about it. Um, I often say in my background, um, I was the worst leader in the world in the first leadership job I ever had. Yeah. Because I did the job well, I just did not know how to lead others. 
Yeah. And I still feel that that's a challenge today. Would you agree with that kind of thought? It, for sure. It's the biggest problem is that mm-hmm. those that are promoted into leadership roles are, as you say, normally promoted because they're the best at the job. So they have the technical skill within that, but it's a different set of skills mm-hmm. to be a leader. There's right. leadership skills versus technical skills are different, different. And it's not that one can't as a highly specialized technical person, whether you're a salesperson or an engineer or a marketer or a programmer or whatever, it doesn't matter you know, if you're really good at that. It's a different set of skills to be a great leader. And mm-hmm. how we transition um, highly capable individuals as subject matter experts to then be leaders of teams of subject matter experts, um, that is what we do a really poor job of. So what can companies do to develop leaders? Some of my clients have uh, emerging leader type programs, and that's powerful. But what can most companies do to help develop future leaders down the road? Well, having this leadership pipeline and this, this emerging leader program is, is part of it. And one of the first um, problems that need to get addressed and it's ironic is um, if, if you look at where the investment is in an organization for talent development, it's almost always heavily weighted at mid and upper management in terms of where the, the, the proportion of dollars are spent. And, and the irony of course, is that where the, where the work is done and where the highest yields are in terms of creating a high-performing team, it is at the bottom of that sort of hierarchical pyramid. The the frontline leaders are actually the ones that have the greatest impact on the work that is being done that is creating the value that the customers of the organization are buying. So the the first thing that we have to actually do um, to to create better teams and, and more effective organizations is to rethink where we're making our investments about leadership development. And we need to reprioritize an increased investment on frontline leadership development. And then the second part we have to realize is that creating a new leader, just like imagining going and and taking on a new job, the people who perform best in the new job have been primed and prepared for the new job before they get into the new job. It's not once you get into the job that you then start to figure out what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there actually needs to be, uh, and there's been some useful studies on this, about a six-month period prior to the person taking on a new job that three things happen. And this is also what's wrong and what needs to change with how we, we promote and, um, and develop individuals. The, the three things that have to happen are, and this is true for leadership development in general, but you need a project, you need knowledge, and you need coaching. For, for a leader or an individual to develop new skill, these three things have to be present. And for a new leader, an emerging leader, the kind of knowledge that they need to obtain is about the role they're going to be walking into, this new leadership position. 
and they need to become educated on the core capabilities that they need to master mm -hmm. to be successful in that job. And while they're still a subject matter expert, they need a project or a vehicle or a mechanism for them to apply this knowledge as a, as a leader to undergo practical training, learning through doing of the knowledge and skills that they've just been trained on. But even that's not sufficient to ensure success. Mm -hmm. That the, you need the third part of the triangle, which is you need a coach. You need a coach because what happens as the individual moves into this, I'm going to call it the zone of uncertainty, this, this period of, I'm not a subject matter expert anymore, but I'm not a full-fledged leader. I'm in that in-between zone. When they're in that in-between zone, their, their new identity as the leader is not formed yet. They don't see themselves as that leader yet. And while they're in that zone in the middle, which is very uncomfortable for that individual because they're not the expert anymore and they're not an expert in the leader position anymore, that coaching becomes so important because what that coach has to do is to accelerate the rate at which the individual learns how to be the person that they're becoming, if this makes sense. Okay. The, that, that coach is, is, is their guide between their former role as a subject matter expert to their new role as a leader. And again, remember, this is happening in six months before they're actually in the leadership chair. Right. So that as they're going through this, their, their business coach, process coach, management coach, executive coach, however you want to describe it, is acting as the catalyst for their personal development. Okay. So that coming out of that six month period, they've, it's not their first time sitting in the leadership chair. It's not their first time going through and experiencing and having someone to support with them, how they're going to develop and learn to be the new them. And as they move into that leadership position now, they're set up for success. And that coach stays with them for about another six months as they move through in the school of hard knocks in the leader, the new role as a leader. Um, but at that point, what they're now doing is finding their stride. They're not yeah. learning how to run. And, okay. uh, and this is perfect sense. Yeah. This is really what's one of the things that's, that's really wrong with, um, with how we develop leaders is that we think that training is enough and it's not, you have to connect, as I just mentioned, the training, which is the knowledge piece right. with a specific application area, which is a project or a, something that needs to get done at work. And then you need that coach who supports them in both learning how to apply the knowledge, but also changing the way they think. And it's interesting because I can see a lot of organizations hitting two of these three whether it's the project and the knowledge or the knowledge and the coaching, but very seldom do you see them hitting all three. Yeah. So let me ask you a question on the coaching. Do you find that it's better to bring in an external coach who does not know the individual, does not know the organization, or do you sometimes think it's better if the person is an internal coach helping them build and grow that has a strong working knowledge of the organization? Well, I mean, the, the best 
uh, and most effective way for coaching to happen actually is with internal coaches. Okay. And it's with internal coaches because they understand the internal dynamics that are happening and they intimately can make the connections between the issues that are showing up. The problem though, of course, is that at least initially, the internal coaches are not skilled enough in coaching to be effective coaches. Right, they're good leaders, but not necessarily good coaches of other leaders. Yeah, and this is, and there's been a number of studies and I've seen it with my own experiences too, that there's an interesting irony about coaching, which, which, is, which is the following, that if you're a good coach, and I can talk about what a good coach is in a moment, but if you're a good coach, you actually have to coach less frequently to create a, a good outcome. Because when you coach and you're targeted and you're specific and you're clear about what has to happen and you can demonstrate how to do these things, and you can give specific feedback on what's wrong about the thing that's being undertaken. Mm-hmm. When you give that kind of coaching, imagine like you're on the, the football field or you're on the baseball diamond and, and, the, and the batting coach is you know, what, looking at you and they're, they're looking at your stance and they're looking at how you're holding your bat and they're looking at when you swing. The bad coach says, you know, swing harder. You know, the, 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 the good coach actually says, says things like this. They say, tell me exactly when you can see the thread on the ball spinning. Put up your hand when the pitcher throws the ball and you can actually see the threads turning and you can see the red. Because if you can't see the ball, you can't hit the ball. And, and this is what good coaching is at work as well. The good coaches have to be able to, sit with their 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 the batter at work their, their protege their protege their coachee and be able to say the equivalent of tell me when you can see the thread spinning on the baseball in whatever is the work that's being done and and it, that's why internal coaches are very good because they understand the dynamics of all of that at mm-hmm. work but the problem is that most coaches are not trained that way they don't understand how to coach that way and so this then becomes the, the, the real problem is that bad coaching, when it's done at work, accelerates poorer performance. In other words, the more wow. bad you coach and the more frequently you coach poorly, your people and your teams accelerate. They get worse faster. And, and, and so the irony is if you're a lousy coach, if, you're, if you as a leader and a manager can't do the equivalent of the baseball analogy with your people and with your team if you can't do that then it's better that you don't coach than to try and coach wow never looked at it that way it goes back to the old uh, analogy i don't know who said this practice does not make perfect perfect practice makes perfect correct and so that that goes right back into it we got in We've got to be coaching the right things because if we're coaching the wrong things, it's not going to help. Exactly. It's, it's not okay for a manager to say, you know, I got some really bad feedback on how you ran the meeting. You got to do a better job running meetings. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. No. What you, what you actually have to do is observe what's going on. And then you have to be able to diagnose specifically 
the skill gap, competency gap, mindset gap that's, that's holding the individual back. Mm-hmm. And then you have to create what I call a learning goal and a specific goal to expose and to allow the individual to learn. So for instance, you know, if you're, if you're a manager and, um, and you're, and you don't like the quality of the reports that you're getting from one of your employees, you know, you have one of two choices. You can keep saying, these are lousy reports. I can't do anything with this and getting frustrated, or you can get specific with the kind of, and identify the specific problem that's going on. So you might say, I don't like, it's not the, the layout, it's not the graph, it's, it's the analysis. The analysis is fundamentally weak in this report. Okay, great. So how are you gonna teach analysis? And so this is where a learning goal comes in because you have to first identify what is the gap that you have to close. So the way you do that is you set learning goals, you set learning objectives, and you would say to your, your employee, let's, what are three different ways that you can analyze the same data set? And I want you to conduct those three analysis, and I want you to come back and tell me what are the strengths and weaknesses okay. of the recommendations that you just came up with through those three lenses. With that kind of coaching, now all of a sudden, when they come back with the next round of analysis, you can very clearly see where the gap is in their knowledge. Maybe they don't know how to do certain things. Maybe, maybe, or in their, how they analyze. In other words, their business acumen around what is the meaning of the information that they're actually analyzing. You'll, uh, whatever is the problem will, will, it will manifest itself to the surface. Yeah. And it's that point when coaching and the progress forward can begin. Mm-hmm. And that's I had a, um, I had a manager years ago when I first got into the uh, mortgage banking industry and I was complaining about something not working right. And he came to me and said, okay, um, why don't you go see if you can come up with three ways that it could work differently. Project each of those ways out and come up with a working sample and tell me why you've chosen the way you think it is. So he made me go back and think and develop a process, which by the way, the first way that I wanted to do it after I researched two other ways, one of those other ways was a better way. Yeah. And then we got that implemented and was able to do it. And that would not have happened had he not asked me to get three ways, analyze them both and make a projection. Yeah. And this is, that's it exactly. And this is actually, that one of the skills that differentiates high-performing teams and, and by definition, high-performing leaders is the rate at which their team learns how to learn. How do you measure that? How can you measure the rate that a team learns? Well, you can measure it objectively by the number of cycles that they move through a learning process. Okay. You can measure it subjectively by looking at the number of ideas and the quality of ideas and the, the range of ideas okay. that are being generated by the team. You can look at it behaviorally also by, by how you listen to the kinds of questions that the individuals in the team ask. If they ask questions to learn or if they ask questions to find fault. And 
and this That's is the key one. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, but what you're, what you're, what you're really trying to do as a leader in these contexts is develop your, the, and this is now the, now we're talking about some of the mechanics of how the team operates, but you're developing the psychological safety within the team to take risk because the reason why the, why the rate of learning is so important is it's analogous or it's a precursor for risk-taking. That if you're not willing to take risks, you're not willing to learn. If you're not willing to, because learning has to transcend just knowledge from a book. When I'm talking about learning, I'm talking about application as well. Mm-hmm. Where we move from understanding something conceptually, we move to understanding it experientially. And with them, we based on that new experience, we develop a new understanding of whatever it is that we're learning about. And that only happens in a team if they trust each other and they're not afraid to fail. And vulnerability and, trust. And how and so the leader then, and this is how this is how a leader starts to build trust in a team, is when they actually ask questions around how they learn. And it's, it's not a right or wrong answer about did they get the outcome they were looking for, but it's how they moved through it's the, the process they did to get there. And there's a, there's a specific process that you have to move through. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's take this away from a business aspect for a moment. And let's just talk about this kind of more in a personal environment. Can you do some of the same things that you're talking about, um, you know, with a... Um, say a, a high school baseball team or football team? Can you do it with a cheerleading squads? Can you do it with uh, choirs at a church or something like that? Can some of the same processes be applied there? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, so the, 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 the larger process, the meta process, the overarching process, the way you think about this is that, and this is what came out of my research, is that this is all goal-directed behavior. We're moving towards a goal. We want to achieve something. Okay. And, and as we move towards a goal, of course, the goal itself is actually an outcome. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a result. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a result of, of fundamentally two things. It's first a result of the choices we make. And then the second thing it's a result of is the actions we take. So our choices lead to our actions, our actions lead to the results, and those results create a new set of choices that emerge for us. Yeah. And it's a cycle that we move through, and this is the learning cycle, that choices and act lead to actions, actions lead to results, and results lead to new choices. And so when you think about how you apply this in like a sports team or cheerleading squad or whatever, the first thing that you have to get clear about is where you're moving towards. But and then, it's not just about winning a game either. And it, yeah, it's, it's not, or it could be winning a game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even if, in the context of a game, if you, if we want to think about it in the context of winning a sports game, the, the first choice that happens is what's the coaching, what's the strategy to win the game? Okay, you know, what's our, what's our game plan? What's our game plan? What's our formation? When, when, when the, when the offense lines up in this formation, how is the defense lining up? That is the first choice that happens to stop, if we're talking football, for instance, to stop an offensive play. It's the defensive formation to, to mm-hmm. pin back. That's a, that's a choice. 
then the next question that happens is once the quarterback snaps the ball and the play is live, then the, qu- the question is action. How did, how does the, how does the player or the, the team, the group of players, depending on what's happening, how do they act? How do they move? How do they implement that choice? How do they blitz? Did they, did they execute the blitz properly? For instance, did the, the defensive line blitz properly? And did the offensive line block the blitz properly? Correct. And so this is where you see that choices and actions can happen at the sort of the level of the overall game plan, but they can also happen and they do happen at the level of the individual themselves. That right. offensive lineman is also making a choice and an action. The offensive lineman is making a read on the defensive posture and they're adjusting. They're making a choice at that point based on the body positioning and the stance of the individual that they're blocking. They make a choice about how they're going to play that, play that snap out. And then they execute the snap and away it goes. So um, the first thing that, that whenever, um, and it doesn't matter what context it's in, the first thing that, that people that want to achieve goals, what they do is they start to critically examine their choices. Did, were the choices that they made, and that's what a coach does, by the way, in a sports team. They, they, they look at the choices that were made on the field and the actions that were taken to see whether or not those were appropriate. And, and the great coaches, of course, you know, they, don't, they aren't the ones that flag the, uh, the, the breakdown that led to the touchdown you know, and, the, and the missed tackle right at the very end. The great coaches walk it all the way back and they go, see that, that person 20 yards behind who didn't take care of that person? Mm-hmm. That's where it broke. Right. And the coach to find the there. systemic problem in the play, not necessarily the symptom or end result. Correct. Because those are all a result of the previous choice in action. Mm-hmm. So by that, the way, that, sometimes those actions uh, and choices can be you, you made the phrase of, you know, on the field during the game or something. Sometimes choices come into play that happen away from the team and can impact the team separately altogether. For sure, 100%. Yeah, so those are the things that we start to look at. So it's powerful that you're talking about choices there, okay? And leaders have to be able to find the right players, put the right players in the right positions, whether it's a sports team or not. And so, and knowing who's gonna be able to respond in certain plays, that's where you start to get to. So. You talked about performance. How does culture come into that? And how does culture and performance gel together? Well, I mean, they're, they're intimately connected, as you well know, mm-hmm. that leadership informs culture and culture informs leadership. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. Right. Um, and so, you know, when I'm working with organizations and leaders and teams, <clears throat> the, the first question I ask is, is, is this the culture that you want? Is this a high performance culture? And because the, the culture is a reflection of the leadership. Right. And, and as we've kind of talked about already, the, there are larger things that need to be moving to create that high performing culture. You know, they, the, the team has to be focused on a North Star. They need a very clear mission and objective that they're trying to work on 
And if, if, that, if that's not clear, then the team won't be effective. And the articulation of that and the, the, the elevation of that mission is the role of the leader to both work with the external folks in the, in, you know, in the organization, mm-hmm. um, but also t- to work with the teams themselves to make sure that that mission is, is, is appropriate. That, that will inform the culture right there. And yeah. the second that starts to move through then is, you know, you get a culture based on how you lead and how you, how you measure and how you reward. And when you have a culture that is, or metrics or KPIs, for instance, that don't align with what you're trying to accomplish, you create dysfunctional behaviors. You're going like that. You're, you're got the, you got the di- divergent kind of behavior pattern. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's also a leadership choice. It is, a, right. it is fundamentally a leadership choice around what measures of success we're gonna put in place, how we're gonna reward people, how we're gonna quote unquote punish poor behavior. And, and if those KPIs and those metrics don't align, if there's a conflict between them, then it's to be expected that you have dysfunctional behavior. If, if you're rewarding one team for innovation and you're rewarding another team for cost reduction, those two often go against each other. And uh, so it's no wonder that the best ideas aren't moving forward if those are your kind of conflicting metrics and half your team is being measured and, and bonused on cost reductions and savings. Mm-hmm. And the other one is is being bonused on winning market share and speed to market. Right. So, um, so, so, the leadership has to become very aware of that when they set the mission and they set the parameters for where the organization's going, that they also have to enable it with their processes and their behaviors. And, there has to be the balance. Um, and it's the balance that happens. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give you a classic example. I, I recently did some work with a major telecommunication, telecommunications company here in Canada. And, uh, you know, 60,000 people, like big. And in the in uh, and during COVID, I was talking with some of their senior leaders, senior vice presidents, and about what they did. And they created a mission and a mantra around it that unlocked the potential of their people. And it was the clarity of their mission and the clarity of the mantra that did it. They they said, "We have two jobs right now. We have to keep our customers connected, and we have to keep our people safe." And these two things, this clarity of mission and clarity of purpose set the organization on a path. They then unlocked conflicting KPIs. So rather than having internal metrics that worked against each other, they deprioritized and de-emphasized those metrics that did not align with keeping our customers connected and keeping our people safe. And people started to line in. They then operationalized around this and put in processes and reports and metrics and management cadences to constantly allow the best thinking and the best ideas on how to do those two things to come to the surface and to prioritize and debate which ones would be done and sequenced in which order. Mm-hmm. And then they, they did the last thing, which is the most important. And this is how, again, how leadership and culture connect is they walked the walk and talked the talk. So 
Yep. They didn't say we want to keep culture. I mean, they, they didn't say we want to keep, you know, our people safe and our customers connected and then do the complete opposite. Right. Each day, their behaviors and their vocabulary reinforced this. Had to be instinct. And, and they created the conditions where this culture of, of um, focus could occur. And what happened? So what, what was the net of from, from that? First, they've never seen employee engagement at the level that they've ever, that they've, since they've measured it, they've never seen it this high. So that's, that shows you the power of creating a high performance culture that's aligned and creating that alignment through. And, in, in, and this was during the COVID crisis. During the COVID. So that's, that's a huge thing because so many people are complaining that during COVID, their employee engagement is down. Here's an example where employee engagement's up. Yeah. And they hit their financial targets during COVID wow. as well. Okay. Because, again, imagine what's happening, right? You've yeah, got a symbiotic the, approach. The, it, it, they feed off of each other. They, the, with the people fully engaged and committed to a, 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 a target that they agree in, and the leaders behaving in a way that's congruent with that, and putting the systems and the processes in place to continuously feed this machine that they're creating that's pushing people towards this North Star, it's no wonder that you get people going above and beyond. It's no wonder that people are engaged in the workforce because now their creative outlets have a place. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a contrasting example. Let me ask you a quick question here on that, on that, that, that exact example. Sure. How long did it take because you're talking about a large company and there's a lot of people who say, you know, 60,000 employees, it's going to take forever to get something like that to be run through. How long did that take them to put into place? They were starting to see things happen in weeks, in weeks. Wow. And where, and it really obviously snowballed and gained momentum. The, one of the quotes that the senior vice president told me, he said, we did things in days that would have taken us years to do in the past because of the clarity of mission and the deprioritize of all the things I just described. Yeah. That is powerful. Give, and I'll like the contrasting example where you, you start to see when, when you have that disconnect between the mission and the mantra and what's actually showing up when, when the employees feel the hypocrisy, mm-hmm. what happens? So I also was interviewing um, senior leaders, like COO, CEOs of small companies. And, um, and this one was a manufacturing company. And they focused on, they had the same tensions that, that this large telecommunications company had of, how do I make, hit my financial commitments and my customer commitments and keep my people happy and get through a pandemic with all of this? But they chose a different path. They chose a path where they focused on preserving the firm rather than preserving the people, or they took, they took a self-centered view rather than an other-centered view, as I describe it. Right. And so they did, when you take that view, you do what you normally do, which is you rationalize and you, put your, your, you make your decisions within that context. And so as order volumes went up and down, they right-sized the employee base based on order volume. If there's no orders, why would we have all these people in the plant? 
And, and they had this cycle of hire, fire, layoff, hire, fire, layoff. And, um, and guess what happened? As people had an opportunity to make a choice about whether they're going to come back to work or not. They chose not. They chose not. And actually, more specifically, the best people who had the most options chose not. The people who didn't have options, the mid-performers and low-performers, came back. Okay, let, let, let's analyze that again because we're getting tight on time and I want to make sure we get this. They had an option. So your better employees, the ones who were really engaged prior to, chose not to come back. Correct. And the weaker ones who may not have had nearly as many options didn't necessarily have a choice, so they did come back. Correct. And consequently, they're not hitting their financial targets. They're not hitting their morale. They're not hitting their engagement. Their leadership is probably faltering. The culture is going downhill. It's a spiral effect. Correct. Exactly. Wow. Wow. And this is how leadership and culture and leadership choices inform culture. And, and they actually had a very good culture before this. Mm -hmm. And it goes to show you that you can't take culture for granted. No. And it's kind of like, you know, you've got, you go to, you go to the nice Italian restaurants and you, and you get that little appetizer with the bread and the olive oil and the, and the balsamic vinegar and, and you, and you put the oil and the vinegar together and they separate right away. But if you want the nice emulsion, you've got to stir that so that the oil and the vinegar combine and become one. Mm -hmm. And you can have your bread and it tastes delicious. Yes. But as absolutely. soon as you stop stirring it, what happens to that oil and vinegar? It starts to separate again. It separates again. So teamwork, leadership, and culture is not something that can be done once. No. It's something it's, that needs to be nurtured over time. Correct. Continually. And I think that's where a lot of people do drop the ball. Exactly. Dr. Paul, I tell you, we've, we've been on here now for, our, for a little over 40 minutes, and it's amazing how fast this time has flown. The power of everything that we put into this is amazing. I, the, the knowledge that you've spread with us today has just been great. Hopefully, we can get you back on here again in the future and dive into this a little bit deeper. Would that be open to you? I would love that. I've really enjoyed this conversation, too. Yeah. It's fascinating for me to talk to people on so many different levels about teamwork, leadership, and culture. And for those of you listening to the Teamwork Advantage for the first time, We've had several people talk about culture in different ways, not different, bad, just different that tie all together. So I encourage you to go back and find some of the older episodes. I encourage you to find things out about teamwork, leadership, and culture in every aspect of our lives. Dr. Paul, once again, I say thank you for joining us here on the Teamwork Advantage. And guys, until next week, when we have a new teamwork, leadership, and culture expert popping in to share their ideas with us, be sure to make it a great day because having a good day is only being average. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.